Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everybody to hear this wonderful lecture today. My name is Emma McCoy and I am the Vice President and Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Education and, and also I'm a Professor in the Department of Statistics here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm really pleased to welcome all of you here in the Hong Kong Lecture Theatre today for this talk. I'm even more pleased to be joined by Professor David Sumpser, Professor of Applied Mathematics at the University of Uppsala, Sweden. Um, he's the author of a number of bestsellers, including the 10 equations that rule the world. Um, I have a couple of extras that I'd add to that, as well as socomatics. And in fact, I was telling David earlier on that the first time I came across David was actually through the work that he does on soccer, um, on football analytics. I'm waiting for the groan, but I'm an Arsenal supporter myself. Um, and then also Outnumbered. Um, Outnumbered's been translated into 10 languages. Talking about football, he's worked with a number of the world's biggest football clubs advising on analytics. Now today, David is going to talk about his latest book, which is um, entitled Four Ways of Thinking, Statistical, Interactive, Chaotic and Complex. And copies of the book will be for sale outside the, after the event. And David has kindly agreed to do some um, book signing. And I gather maybe the odd selfie as well, or maybe I shouldn't encourage. <laughs> this is what happened at Oxford. <laughs> for those Twitter users, um, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Ways of Thinking. This event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, of course, subject to the usual caveats about having no technical difficulties. We will have an opportunity for a Q&A after the lecture. And I'll let you know when we open the floor to questions, just raise your hand and there will be wandering microphones so that we can pick up your question. Um, as far as I'm aware, there isn't a fire uh, alarm scheduled, but if there is one, please um, exit following the kind of exit signs. Um, also, if you do have a mobile phone, can you please have it on silent so that the lecture isn't disturbed? But for now, I am delighted to hand over to David, who will introduce us. David, over to you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Emma, for a really lovely introduction. And thank you all for coming here. It's really nice. I mean, I write books, and so I sit there by myself and write in detail the thoughts that I have in my head. And it's kind of a very private process. And then I come out and I see lots of people who want to hear about these ideas. And it's just fantastic, actually, to see so many of you here tonight. So four ways of thinking. I'm going to give you a brief outline of what these are, and then we're going to, I think it's really nice, we're going to have an open discussion about this, so you've got plenty of time to ask questions, so you can think of your questions while I'm talking. The four ways are statistical, interactive, chaotic, and complex. And I was inspired in this idea from a work by Stephen Wolfram, who was a child prodigy and a famous theoretical physicist, and he worked with some models called cellular automata. We'll see a little bit of them later. And he found that in these cellular automata models, there was four different types of patterns that came. One of them was stable, one of them was periodic, one of them was chaotic, and the other one was complex. And I kind of started with that idea in my own writing. And I changed two of the names because stable, statistical is a little bit of sort of stable patterns in our life. 
An interactive captured periodicity a little bit better. But it's not that these are the unique ways of thinking, but they're a good way of breaking down how we approach problems and the types of problems that we approach as applied mathematicians. So we'll start with statistical. In each chapter of the book, I have an historical figure who illustrates the point, and I'm going to start with one of them. This is Ronald Fisher, and this is a photograph taken of him in early 1920s. He's at Rothamsted, the research institute, and he was an oddball mathematician. It's worth saying that he was an incredibly arrogant young man. He believed that he was the most intelligent person on the planet, and he, he was pretty clever. He went to Cambridge as an undergraduate. He got a first-class degree in the mathematical tripos. I was in Oxford yesterday, and I was saying which at the time was the hardest mathematical degree to get. And so he was, he was very smart, but he also thought he was smarter than his professors. And instead of studying for his exams, he would sit trying to work out how mathematics was coupled to reality. His concern was that, yes, we do all of these calculations, but what we don't do is we see how they're coupled to reality. And that's the problem he was working on, but he was very much stuck in his own head working on that problem until there was a guy who owned Rothamsted, Sir John, and he needed an oddball mathematician of this type to look at all their experimental data they were collecting. And when he arrived at Rothamsted, Sir John told Ronald Fisher that they'd recently started having women work there for the first time. And so they decided, they didn't know what to do with these women, really, but they thought that if we have these ladies here, well, ladies like to drink tea. So what they decided was they were going to have tea parties for the, the ladies in the afternoon. And those tea parties, luckily the men also participated in the, in the tea parties, those tea parties became very popular with everybody. And it was at that point that Fisher was sitting there and he heard that uh, Dr. Muriel Bristol, one of the researchers, he wanted to serve her some tea. And she said, no, 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 I don't, I don't want that. I like to have my milk first before the tea. And Fisher was, oh, this is ridiculous. I can't be drunk, it can't, be, can't taste any different. It's got to taste exactly the same. It doesn't matter if you put in the tea first or the milk first. And he was completely unsatisfied with this and he wanted to do a statistical test. So he demanded that they get eight cups of tea and they do a statistical test of if Muriel Bristol could tell the difference between if her milk came in first or the tea came in first. And I'm going to actually test you guys. So this was an unsolved problem that uh, Fisher started with in the 1920s. I've got a statistics professor here with me, so <laughs> she's going to inform us. But I'm going to ask you to vote here. So how can we test if Dr. Muriel Bristol can detect milk before tea using eight cups? Now, you've got two options. We can offer a pairwise challenge of four pairs, of which one is always tea first, and the other is always milk first. Or we can present four of each, milk first and tea first cups, and ask her to identify four which are milk first. Or your third option, C, is that there's no difference between the two. So I, I want you to all, you all have to offer a vote now. It doesn't matter if you get it wrong, it's, it's okay. Who wants to go for A? Who would like to have a pairwise test for them? Okay, so there's a few over there. Yeah, a few more hands going up, good. And then B, who would like to give the tray full of milk? Yeah, there's actually a majority for that one. And who thinks there's no difference? Okay, interesting. Well, we'll go through it then, right? So let's take, and the pairwise, the pairwise was a suggestion 
of one of Muriel Bristol's colleagues, William Roach, who actually went on to marry her after this story. <laughs> and so he, uh, he suggested, first of all, that they should do the following, that they should do option A. And this is what option A would look like. You would have pairs, you've got four pairs, and the important point here is to think about all the ways that you can set up this experiment. The first one here is that you always have, in the pairs, you might set them up in a row, you always have the milk first on the left and the tea first on the right. And then there's, in total, 16 different ways of setting up the experiment this way. And how do we think about this? Well, you can basically think of the first test that you give Muriel Bristol. There's a 50% chance that she gets it right. Second test, 50% chance. Third test, 50%. Fourth test, 50%. They're all independent. So it's one divided by 16 is the probability that she will get it right in this test setup. And if you do option B, where you place them out entirely at random, and you say that she has to identify the correct ones, well, and I think a majority of you get it, got it, there's 70 ways of doing this. And I was a bit lazy, I couldn't be bothered writing them all out. Um, so I decided to do the maths, and the maths is this, that you have eight places to put the first cup, with the milk, you have seven places to put the second cup, you have six places to put the third cup, and, four, and five places to put the fourth cup out on the tray, the ones with the milk. And then out of all those milky ones, there is a combination of four times, three times, two ways in which you can order them. And so the probability then becomes, well, the, the ways of doing it becomes eight times, seven times, six times, five, divided by four times, three times, two times, one, which is 70. And then the probability that Muriel Bristol gets it right is 1 in 70. When I did this in Oxford, I forgot to tell the result, and nobody asked me who the result, did she get it right? Now, the Fisher hated being wrong, and he even wrote about this story in his book, and he didn't confess that she got it right in the book. He just described the experimental setup. But luckily, his daughter wrote a biography of Fisher, and she describes that very clearly Muriel Bristol did get it right. She could tell the difference, even in this difficult 1 in 70 chance of, of doing the experiment. Fisher went on to write a book on experimental designs, and that work, that initial work that he did, became the groundwork of much of the statistics that we use today. And of course, I, I like statistics. I'm going to say it's just one way of thinking. But statistics is very powerful. And as was said earlier, I work in football. And what I often hear, this is actually, actually, I'm going to tell the story. It's just an excuse for me to put up a picture of me sitting next to Gary Neville. So that's, uh, that's why I've got this here. But basically, what I hear from lots of football people, and I heard this also from Gary Neville, we did a thing sitting talking about football and statistics. And he said, well, you know, you can have your stats and you can measure this and you can measure that, but you can never measure the attitude when a team goes down 1-0, if a player works hard to come back and create chances for his team, that's, that you can't measure. You can't measure attitude. And I thought, this is great, because that's, you know, he's, what he's doing, just like Fisher, he's stating a hypothesis that you can't measure attitude. And you can't quite measure what's going on inside their mind, but you can measure how a football player performs before they go down and how they perform after they've gone down. And this is one 
graph where we've done something like this. So we've, what we do is we make models which measure everything that football players do. So everything they do with the ball. We also have measurements off the ball. But here is, for example, our model of the performance of Trent Alexander-Arnold in a match they lost, Liverpool lost 2-1. You can see that his is performance. And the, the bit that we're testing here is this middle bit. This is when they go two goals down. And you can see that his performance is going up. Then they go to another goal down, and his individual performance goes down again. And so you've measured, and we called this afterwards the Gary Neville statistic, and it measures if how your performance compares the 15 minutes before you go a goal down and the 15 minutes afterwards. And we studied, we went back and we studied the season, and I love this because we were able to use Fisher's exact test. And we, could, we made this, you know, the top attitude, the top Gary Neville metric strikers. And it turns out the sorts of, some of the players that Gary Neville might think of as having this attitude turn out to do quite well. So here's Jamie Vardy, who very much has that sort of, um, yeah, attitude of never, never being defeated. And he did better in 29 matches where the, his team went down. He did worse in 13, and he was the same in the five. It turns out that most players actually perform better when they go, go a goal down. So it was more common to perform better than to perform worse after you've, after you've conceded a goal. But Jamie Vardy was the top striker in, in this. So you can basically, I'm not saying that you can measure, well, I, maybe I am, I'm saying you can get some sort of statistical handle on almost everything. But then there's limits to this, right? And I have to admit, I go around doing a lot of popular science talks recently, and we're, we're very into these ideas, and, and TED has been a, a very good way of lifting out these different types of statistical studies. And so this is a TED talk. This is for the book I watched the 25 most popular TED talks ever and ana analyzed their statistical content. And this was one of them by uh, Angela Duckworth. And what she proved was that people who had more grit, more determination, did better as students at Yale University, at West Point um, Army College, and also in a spelling, a national spelling bee. And so you could, what, all you had to do is you ask people before they start these activities, ask them questions like, um, do you always see through the things that you begin? Are you a determined person? So you ask them if, if they think that they're a gritty, determined person, and then she found in the test that there was a statistical relationship between being gritty and succeeding. And that's very good, and it's a TED talk, and we're all sitting there watching it, and, and maybe we're feeling, yes, now we need to be more determined. But what's not really made clear in the TED talk is that her paper explains 4% of the variance. Now, 4% of the variance doesn't mean it just applies to 4 percent of people it's a little bit more complicated than that so what I did is I made a, a picture here showing what four percent of the variance looks like roughly so this isn't the real data and I don't have access to the real data but I can recreate data on the same scale this is grit and grade point average and this is what it would look like and so you can see there's there's some people have high grit and do very well. Some people have lower grit and don't do very well. But there's also quite a lot of people here who have no grit at all or very little grit, and they're succeeding. And there's people down here who have lots of grit, and unfortunately for them, they try very hard, but they're not succeeding. 
And there is, a, there is a relationship there. You can start drawing straight lines through it if you like to do that kind of thing. But that doesn't always come out in the headline. And so I like this, I like this, and I this phrase that we shouldn't confuse. It's called the ecological fallacy in scientific speak. But I change that into you shouldn't confuse the tree and the forest. So this is an individual tree, and this kind of whole um, smudge of points is a forest. It can be very useful for educators to know that grit is important when you're running a university, for example, but it's not necessarily useful for you as an individual. And lots of people sit there watching these TED Talks, trying to think how they can change their lives to fulfill these, these things. And so there's limits to statistics. And it's very important to realize also that it's not just limits, there's also complete misuses of it. And I took Ronald Fisher because <coughs> He's also an incredibly controversial figure, and a pretty terrible figure, actually. So he, a lot of what he did his statistical uh, research on, he became a professor of eugenics. And his idea was that people who he called feeble-minded shouldn't be allowed to reproduce. They should be sterilized. And this research, the worst thing is it's morally repugnant. I mean, it's a horrible thing. But it's also scientifically wrong. It isn't true that there isn't sort of a gene for feeble-mindedness. There isn't really actually hereditary of any sort of feeble-mindedness. And what he did is instead of admitting it was wrong, he'd come up with all kind of dubious statistical arguments that weren't quite related to the problem and argue that they were the correct way of thinking about it. And he did this like, not just once in his career, he did it twice. I mean, when the Second World War came, well, thankfully one positive thing that came out of the Second World War was that no longer was it acceptable to talk about these types of eugenic ideas. But after that, he went on smoking. He, if you looked in the first picture, he was blowing on his pipe and he blew constantly on his pipe or he was smoking a cigarette. And so he just couldn't believe that smoking was dangerous. So he used all of his statistical powers to undermine uh, any of the research that was going on in smoking and relationship between smoking and cancer and probably delayed the, um, the actual medical recommendations of that. And he did it again using statistics. So statistics have a limit. Um, now I feel really bad. I've, 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 sat, I've stood up next to a statistics professor and uh, destroyed <laughs> statistics. But um, and of course, statistics professors are also aware of those limits of uh, statistics. But one, we sometimes think, I mean, one at the bottom is causation and correlation. We hear about that. It's very important with context. So I talked a little bit about Gary Neville, but he's right in lots of ways. You know, we can't, just, we can't just always use statistics. We have to think about the context. The one with the um, tree in the forest, that's what we'd call effect size. It's this ecological fallacy. But also I think that this is a really important one. Like Ronald Fisher, I mean, doing this test, if Muriel Bristol likes tea or not, he's just a dick. I mean, why? Why does he need to know that? You know, why every time somebody says anything, does somebody else have to check it out using statistics? And, you know, why every time you do something in your job, someone's collecting some numbers on how well you've done it and it's being reported back? And, you know, there just should be a limit to these things. It's not, it's not good. So in that way, I'm a very much an anti-measuring-everything type of person. And 
We're going to get into discussion. I spent quite a lot of time on the statistical thinking. And what I wanted to do in the book is I wanted to talk about both the positives and the negatives of statistical thinking, but then I wanted to move on to some of the other thinkings. And I suppose if I was to, I've been asked a few times about this, and I think if personally, which is my favorite way of thinking, interactive is a very nice way of thinking because interactive is all about looking at social processes and interactions in our lives and trying to model them and to understand them. And this came, I'm not going to go into the details of the mathematician who came up with it, it was um, Alfred Lotka. But what he did, which was very nice, is he took chemical reactions and he said, if you've, anyone who's been at school will know that you have to spend a lot of time balanced. I'm not sure why, but well, all, all chemical reactions are balanced, right? So there's four hydrogens on the left here and two oxygens. There's four hydrogens on the right here and two oxygens, the two, two times the O. And that's something we all had to sit in school calculating and balancing equations. What Lotka did is he said, let's just forget about balancing equations. And this is what I think is so lovely about interactive mathematical thinking. You don't have to say things that are strictly statistically true anymore. You just make up ideas about how you see the world and then you can investigate those ideas and then you test it against data. And that's really fun. And the one he came up with, and I've noted here it's rabbits and foxes, he said, well, what if there's a rabbit and it spontaneously produces two new rabbits? Now, of course, we know in biology that a rabbit can't just spontaneously produce two rabbits, but he's capturing something about rabbit behavior. And then he's saying, well, what if there's a rabbit and a fox and the fox eats the rabbit? And now the fox has got enough energy to make two foxes. And so there's two foxes. And so that's going to be the chemical reaction here. And then we're going to have a third uh, chemical reaction. It's not just the rabbits that can die when they're eaten by foxes, but the foxes also after, after some time die. And that was the chemical reactions he set up. He then turned this into differential equations. And I, I'm not going to go through solving these. And I think, but I do want to say a little bit about how nicely you can solve these types of equations. So what this is, this says the rate of change of rabbits and the rate of change of foxes and what they're affected by. So rabbits grow, as that, that chemical reaction says. Rabbits are eaten by foxes. When rabbits are eaten by foxes, it means there's more foxes. And then the foxes die. And then when we solve these equations, we can solve them fully mathematically, but we can also look there. We can say, well, if there's a very small number of foxes and a small number of rabbits, well, then the rabbits grow. And so these arrows show that the rabbits will grow and the foxes will go down because the foxes don't have any food. But eventually, when there's enough rabbits, well, then the foxes will increase in number and they'll go up. And then eventually, when there's a lot of rabbits and enough foxes, the rabbits will start to be go down because they're caught by the foxes and will start to circle around in this way. And when we see the solutions, we get exactly that. There's going to be these, going back to Wolfram, these periodic solutions. And you can see this in time as well, with rabbits and foxes will, will go down. And that's the thought experiment. And that allows us to see why everything doesn't go to equilibrium. Most chemical reactions go to equilibrium, but things like rabbits and foxes don't go to equilibrium. And then, you see, I'm, I'm always worried about putting this up because no one wants to think about this anymore. But um, you'll all by now have heard 
about epidemic uh, modeling equations and how they can be right or they can be wrong and, and so on. But the same principle is used in them. So we have susceptible individuals plus the infective individuals. They become two infective individuals. Underlying those models is some basic assumptions about how the spread of disease goes. So I'm, I'm going to hop over that and I'm going to tell you about one fun study that we did. And we thought about this susceptible and infective idea in the context of people applauding. And I always feel very self-conscious at this point in the talk because I know that you're all going to give me a nice round of applause at the end. But what we did is we studied, we did a study where we had an undergraduate student, a third year undergraduate student, who gave a, a talk for first year undergraduate students. And of course it's not guaranteed that the first year undergraduate students will appreciate the third year undergraduate's talk. But we told them, so we told them, you know, give a nice round of applause at the end of it. And then we studied how that applause spread. And we found that it follows the same epidemic curve that we see for corona, for example that there's this S-shaped growth, and then it goes back down again. But the difference between applause and the spread of disease is that there's also a social interaction in the way it finishes. So when you see that people stop applauding, or when you hear that people stop applauding, you're more likely to stop applauding, and there's a social spread of people stopping and applauding. And so I always think at the end of talks, I have to be careful. If you do get, if you're giving a talk and you get a long applause, that might not because what you said is good. It's just because everyone's not very coordinated and they couldn't actually manage to stop. They're all just waiting for each other to stop. So it's a very important consequence of this, uh, of this model. But there's a social interaction there. And this is what I've spent a lot of time working on in my own life and my own research. So my research has been, I talked a little bit about those students, but we've looked mainly at animal behavior and we measure interactions. We've built models, quite simple, cartoon-like models of how fish interact. We simulate those models to see the behavior. We then measure the movement of individual fish. We look at large-scale movements of fish. We tr track those trajectories and then we compare to models again. That's the kind of mathematical cycle we go through in understanding fish. And we do very much the same thing in football. We try to, in, in this particular example, I'm looking at a particular pass, but what we do is we build models of the positions of the players, the speed the ball is kicked, how a player is opening up space, the value of that space that the player is opening up. And that allows us to see was the pass the best possible pass that was available? Was the run that the player made the best possible run? And over the very short term, we can actually quite accurately model football behavior and also what the best uh, strategy is. And we can even do things like measure what happens off the balls. Yeah, so this is a run by Luke Shaw where he doesn't get the ball, but you see he makes this run. But what we can see is the value of that run had he actually been passed. And so after the match, Luke Shaw can go to McTominay and say, look, I made this very valuable run. And so you can actually see the value of the, of the particular run that's made. And then we can use that in scouting to evaluate players who maybe don't get past enough if they're, if they're doing very valuable runs. I've gone on a, on a little bit. What I'll do, and I'm going to leave complex thinking for a bit later, but I will tell you about chaotic thinking because I've got one more little experiment I want to give you. So 
I write a lot in the book about um, Lorentz equations, and also I write most of all about the computer programmer Margaret Hamilton, who first discovered the um, chaos in weather simulations. And so this is the butterfly of chaos. And what happened in that story with Margaret Hamilton is that she did a simulation one day, she did the same simulation the next day, they were trying to predict the weather, and they found that these two things didn't match up. And she looked through her code, everything was perfect, this is like 1960, so you're programming with punch code, but she couldn't find any error in it. But they found that they made a little difference in the initial conditions. So if you imagine putting in the temperature in centigrade, and she might have written 14.152, but then when she did it on the second day, because the printout had to six decimal places, she wrote 14.152368. And that fourth decimal place meant that she got a completely different outcome in her simulation. And that's what's captured. She was working with a system of 14 differential equations. Um, and this was in Edward Lorenz's paper, which was then published. He had a researcher... Um, Ellen Fetter, who actually made these simulations. This shows how very close together position uh, points move off. They follow the same trajectory, but they move off. And what I'm going to allow you to do is we're actually going to generate some chaos right here in this room. So and don't leave your seats, just stay in your seats, but you're going to generate some numerical chaos. So I want you to work in pairs, right? And I, um, so if you came together in a pair, you, work, you can work with somebody you know. It's a good chance to meet someone new. If you're, it's nice that we've got a well-packed um, room here. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and meet someone new. And the, we're going to do the following thing. So one of you thinks of a number between 1 and 99. And then the other person does the following. So if the number is less or equal to 50, double it. And this is the new number. And you say it out loud. Uh, you can't do a math talk without the number 42 in it, so if we take 42, 42 times 2 is 84, okay? So it's simple, you double it. But if the number is greater than 50, take it away from 100, then double it to get the new number. So if your number is 84, for example, you do 100 minus 84 times 2 is equal to 32, okay? And now say that new number to your partner and repeat uh, step 1 or 2. Um, and I'm now going to let you have one minute to do your exercise. Test of people's mental arithmetic. Seem to have spent more time discussing, though, what was actually going on on the board and trying to solve it than, than actually saying numbers to each other. But what, and, and you know, I said earlier about how nice it is when I come out from writing these books and can actually talk to and hear you. And before I say what this, I want to say an example here, and, and this is to point out how you can get chaos in this. And somewhere, somewhere in this room, maybe someone said 13, and somewhere over there, maybe someone said 14. And you started with those two numbers. And if you started with 13, you got 26, 52, 96. Quite similar to start with if you 14, 28, 56, 88. But then it started to get a bit different. If you took 96, you went down to 8. And from 88, you went down to 24. These are starting to get a little bit away from each other. And after some time, they're quite a long way from each other. And 64 and 8 could pretty much be any number. They've really moved a long way from each other. 
And it's that which is the basic idea of chaos. And we can do this, I don't think, I don't know, how many of you took a decimal number to start with? <laughs> okay, I was, if that, if, but basically, the, if you take um, almost any real number, you will get, and then you take plus 0.1 to it, you'll find something like this. I've taken 14.1 and 14.2, and I've allowed them to, I've iterated it over and over again according to the rule, and you see they move apart here, and then they move very far apart, and they're pretty much different. So it just takes like 11, 12, 13 generations of doing this process until you can no longer imagine what the initial values are. And I think what's most beautiful, and the, what I said about liking hearing you all do this, is that there is a, still a pattern, right? So if from my perspective, listening to you say all of those numbers, I'm hearing uniformly distributed random numbers. There's someone over here saying 52, someone saying 36 over here. And that uniform distribution of random numbers is coming back as a collective effect. And you're all, so you're all doing something which, in an interactive way, you're all doing something which is locally deterministic, you're following the same rule over, but when I look out at you, I'm just getting a randomness of, 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 of pattern coming back. And that can be seen in this picture. This is called a cobweb diagram, which shows you how you map between these, these different numbers backwards and forth, forwards. So we'll come back to a little bit of a discussion. Maybe we'll come back to this, but I, I like to think of this, um, this kind of two complementary, this chaos and order. So there's order in what you're doing, but from outside, what I see is just chaos. I think you get through life with statistical interacting and chaotic thinking, and we are going to say a little bit about complex thinking as well, and I do think it's very important to give an idea of the, and this goes back now to Wolfram, this is something I do a lot with my students. Um, I teach a course on modeling complex systems, and I give them a challenge. They have to use a cellular automata model. Now, a cellular automata model, you have a 100 by 100 grid, and then you have a local rule for every point in that grid. It has a local rule where it looks at its neighbors and it updates on the basis of the, of the colors of its neighbors. And the rules, I asked my students to make rules that made the nicest or the most interesting patterns. And Mikkel came up with the following rules. I've, I've given them names actually afterwards, bone, goo, and fluid. But the white things here, the rule for that is these become goo if less than four of their neighbors are bone. Goo, these become fluid, light blue, the goo are the dark blue, they become the light blue if less than three of their neighbors are bone, otherwise they remain goo. Fluid, these become bone if two or more of their neighbors are bone. And the point really isn't what the exact rules are. The point is, from those simple rules of interaction, you get this complex pattern. You get this incredibly intricate pattern, and you can see why I've called them bone, because there's a sort of structure here. It's building some kind of skeleton, and inside that skeleton, it's sending backwards and forwards these, these dark blue and light blue, light blue lines. And one more example of this, which is in the same spirit, this is the Twitter 240-character um, competition. So I think this is a wonderful, there's a whole community of people who write computer programs that are 240 characters long. 
and produce these images. So it was a 240-character program that produced each of these very biologically-looking images. And that goes back to what I look at in the book, this idea that a pattern is as complex as the length of the shortest description that can be used to produce it. What we're trying to do whenever we're understanding a complex system is to find those simple ways of describing the world. We have to do it over and over again in order to get that understanding. But this idea that came from Andrei Kolmogorov is really central to how we, how we see complex systems. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. I think I am going to take Chair's prerogative before we, we start and ask a, a couple of questions and then we'll open it up to the floor. Um, and I, I'm going to go with the chat GPT question okay. because I can't resist the, the AI question. So for those of you that have read or are about to read the book, there's a, there's a wonderful section on if you take all of the, you know, you take Dostoevsky's work um, and then actually that gives you the information to be able to predict the next uh, word in some kind of predictable ma manner, which is really talking about these large language models. And um, so there's a lot really that alludes to AI mm. um, and generative AI in your book. I mean, what are your feelings about that, how, how that will impact on all of these kind of ways of thinking? Because they cross across all of these particular methods, but not by humans, by... Yes, it does. Know, I, think, I think it, what, for me, what ChatGPT and, and those kind of AI methods are, they're a new use of the chaotic random thinking, that you basically treat a text like Dostoevsky, and I take that up in the book, this is something I've done myself, I think I did it with Tolstoy actually, but I take these Russian books and I learn what, how to predict the next word in that book. And, and you use something called a Markov chain. You set it up so you train it saying, well, I'd like to predict. Um, we've got, these are the words we've seen, three words up to now. And now we'd like to predict the next word in that sequence. And the reason it's, it came from Markov, because he started with um, Pushka poems, actually. So he was predicting if it would be a vowel or a consonant, the next letter in a Pushka poem. And he was able to predict that with some success by hand, basically. This was in 1907 he did it. And now we've gone from 1907 up to, I was fiddling around with this a few years ago, to ChatGPT, which is a kind of extremely advanced version of this, where you can take in whole paragraphs of text and predict the next thing that's happening. But that's basically a, a sort of trick of randomness. It's, the, it's our ability to manipulate randomness that allows us to make these very accurate sounding sentences. What it doesn't capture is the true meaning of those things. And I, I think that that's where we start to think about complex systems, that in some way we can never understand the true meaning. We can't, well, we can understand them when we talk to each other, but we can't always build a mathematical model that can, that can understand the true meaning of, of what we say to each other. But do you think, um, I mean, thinking about kind of education and how we teach. All right, okay, how we teach. <laughs> I, I suppose, I suppose I'm, I'm thinking, I think it like this, right? So I think it's important that we know that that's what's going on. But it's important that we understand how these methods work so it doesn't appear like magic. Um, and I mean, if you're thinking about this sort of controversial issue of should you be allowed to use ChatGPT in your, 
yes, I think that we, everyone should be allowed to use ChatGPT. It's like, it's like saying if we go back to the statistics and like Ronald Fisher finds out how to test tea tasting preferences or something, we say we've got to ban this technology, we can't find out these types of things. I suppose I actually said something quite down those lines. But the point is that we, we, we can't sort of ban those types of technologies. Um, we have to make sure that they're not making, where they're not making a lot of false propaganda, that um, there's a lot of problems with bias in those types of technologies. But I think that we have to learn to embrace the use of those. And they're just great. I'm, I'm, although I'm a writer, my grammar is terrible. And they're very good grammar checkers <laughs> and so on. So I do, I do think that they should, be, they should be part of what we learn about. And I did see your own. Uh, you have used it on yourself, haven't you? I yes, noticed. I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, I think all of us have a certain level of vanity. Yeah, no, I have a lot of vanity. I just, um, I mean, so yeah, I looked. I, I did look up myself. I asked it questions about myself, and I can't be that famous because it didn't. It knew who I was. It said that I was worked on football analytics, and but then it started listing a load of clubs that I've never worked with and claiming that I'd worked for these clubs. So it certainly makes up a lot of it, things. Yeah, it does have a tendency to hallucinate. But actually, there's another piece in your book where you talk about actually, in, in, all, of, in all of our kind of lives, it's about asking the right questions. And mm. I know that that's something that I think, again, people have found with this generative AI. It's how you, how you interrogate them, I suppose. Yes, yeah, no, it's very much, and, and that's what we have to, when a new technology like that comes along, that, I think, is very important. We learn how it works, and then we learn to make the use of it. And so when I'm kind of like a little bit anti-ChatGPT uh, or anti-AI, I think that it will transform a lot of... I learned to program it during the summer, and, um, yeah, it's... it's I'm not sure I'm going to say that. I, the, the vanity project I did during the summer is, because it didn't understand who I was, I took my books and I programmed it to understand who I was, and I built a chat GPT David Sumter, so I could sit there and So now you myself. can just say, <laughs> write a book in the style of David yeah, uh, it well, well, it, But it helps, because if you've got your, so the serious point is that it helps you organize your research articles, because you can say, you know, have you done this before? And it will tell me, yes, you've already done this. No point trying that project. But I showed it to my wife, and she said, oh my God. It's enough to have to talk to you all day. I don't want to have to deal with this GPT version of you. Brilliant. So I think now I can open to the floor. Do we have any questions? I'm sure we do. Who's going to be the first person to ask a question? We have. Oh, no, look, definitely. Is it this yes, your, your, your yes. my niece. There is a question uh, over here with, with the T-shirt. With the uh, what's your least favourite theory? My, my least favourite theory, like least favourite mathematical theory. Oh, wow. that's a wow. That's a very that's difficult. That's a contentious thing. question as well. It has to be um, someone that developed and is no longer alive. Um, <laughs> wow, I don't even know the answer, Rowan. Uh, oh, which way of thinking? My least favourite way of thinking is the statistical way of thinking. I have to say, sorry. <laughs> I, I am highly offended. And, um, just, just because. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to try and justify this now sitting next to you. Having, having, I actually moved from Imperial, which is very STEM-focused, to LSE at the beginning of the academic year. And actually, what I found from here now, I'm embracing mixed methodologies. Okay. I, I mean, I think, let, let's go with all of these ways of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Do we Thank have um, another question? Do we have in, in the chat? Just wait for the mic. Thanks. Uh, why did you choose those particular hats? And is that indicative of bias? 
Cassiana. <laughs> we are, I have had this question quite so. So one thing, one thing that's interesting about writing, and people don't know this as much, is that you don't really get to choose the title of your book so much. I got to, I got to choose this title, and you, you get sent a cover of the book with a lot of enthusiastic words about how much they love the cover. And I do like the cover, um, but the first version they sent to me had the, inter it had the red hat on the chaotic thing. And again, my wife, who's always good at advice, she's, you can't, you've already got a gender stereotyped cover. You can't have the chaotic hat. The only woman, the only woman's hat there is the chaotic one. So, so we switched that, and so I like the cowboy, the cowboy idea. And I think really it's to illustrate the type of thinking. So in the end, um, the interactive one is a bit more social. A cowboy's a bit more chaotic. The black one, and this is where I began to think about this and really love the cover, the black one is a magician's hat, right? So it's kind of like pulling out the unexpected. And then the blue one is statistical, and there's quite a lot of young people in the audience, so a lot of you will know that if somebody writes something to you, what they, maybe they exaggerate something slightly and send you a text message, and if you send them back a blue cap emoji, do you know what this means? So cap is slang for bullshit. And so if you want to shorten that down even more, you can just send a blue cap emoji. So there's something, going back to the first question, that there's something about that that, um, that really... Uh... I, I think really, I, I am going to try not to, be, try not to be offended. I think we have another question that the shares in back. Thank you very much for the talk. It sounds like you may cover it in the book, but when you think about kind of large, very complex systems, perhaps like climate or economies and things like that. Um, yeah. Could you maybe flesh out a bit in terms of how it looks like the things you're modeling there were closed complex systems, and so how one can think about the value of large complex systems and if that can be accurately modeled? Thank you. Exactly. So really good question. There's two parts to that. Now I feel I've been too down on statistics. Collecting statistics of, of long periods of data that we have about the climate is really important because that's where we that's where we get our answers from and there's no way in which that type of statistics is bullshit you know that's really important and there's loads of ways in which having that information is important then as mathematicians we try and build up models to understand that so we use the interactive part of it and then we also know that these things are chaotic and unpredictable in some way so we've got this whole kind of set of tools for understanding what I think you're alluding to closed systems. So we close the system in a, in a way that allows us to understand it. But then when you get into these very big, complex systems, which are completely open, then you need different ways of looking at them. So uh, what I do as a modeler is I'll build lots of different models of a particular social system or a climate type of system. I'll build different models that help improve my understanding of it. And that comes back to the Kolmogorov quote there at the end is that, what we're always trying to do is find that sort of simplicity there, which allows us to expand out and understand that complex system. And there's two parts of that. One part is finding those things, and the other thing is remembering that we'll never have a complete answer, that there's always going to be new questions and new ways of thinking about particular systems. So that's, that's my overall, overall approach to that. Thank you. Another question? Thank you very much. Um, I guess I wanted to know more about your view about the individual and how they come to choose a way of thinking. If we all have the same affinity to the types of thinking, um, how common they are, how we choose the right way of thinking, 
or yeah, not? Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very good question. I think that um, my point really isn't to sort of categorize individuals as having a different way of thinking. And it's really that, you know, these are tools that you can use in different types of situations. So I think we should have all ways of thinking. And I said this earlier today to someone that, you know, oh, I think everyone should have all. And they said, well, wait a minute, you said that your favorite thinking is the interactive thinking. So I can't get away from that, that there are people who have different approaches and different preferences for this. But I see it more as, as a tool set than I see it as like, you know, there's that type of person who's the statistical thinker, that person who's the complex thinker. We should all be thinking in these, in these different ways and using them as a, as a tool set to understand things around us. Thank you. Question here. Are any of them just intuitive ways of thinking? Because when Neville said that thing, he was right. Um, and he didn't need to do all the modeling. Yeah. He just knew. So which, which of those are intuitive? Are they all intuitive? I think they all have a, have a degree of in, intuition. So in terms of statistics, the intuition is like this, that often when you do a statistical test, you find out the obvious, right? So uh, I discuss quite a lot in the book if you want to be healthy and you want to live longer, you don't smoke, you drink less than one unit of alcohol a day, or you drink you know, seven, 14 units of alcohol a week. It's all in the government advice, just look it up. It's there, it's written down. Um, you eat vegetables, a lot more vegetables than you think you should eat. You eat lots of vegetables. And you do those things, and you live 12 years longer on average. Like it's been studied across many, many countries. It's a completely clear result that there's no debate about. All this thing about different fads and diets and so on, it's not that important compared to following these basic instructions. The one I didn't say is exercise. You do your exercise. If you do those four things, you live 12 years longer. That's it. And so that's maybe for many people kind of obvious and intuitive. But what's powerful then about statistics is that that can be backed up. I think it's studied now on maybe 10 million different people that that result has been confirmed on. So it's a really solid, concrete result. And then, of course, you have things which are less intuitive that turn out, like the Muriel Bristol tasting the tea, and you can find those things. So they're not the obvious things. But we see this a lot in, a lot in football work, for example, is that it's important that when we have results and we have models, that most of the time it agrees with what the coaches think. Because if it's all just like, you know, totally different, then they lose trust in it. And so then suddenly it will say something like, you know, something a bit different, and then they'll, then they'll pick up on that. And then again, I think in interactive thinking, I use a lot of my intuition when I'm building models, intuition about how people behave and so on, in order to build up the model. Then later we try and um, compare it to the world. So yeah, there's a, little bit of, there's a little bit of intuition in all of them, and intuition is often correct but um, not always, and that's why you sharpen it up with the, with the mathematics. I think in statistics we talk about the intraocular test, which is where something just hits you between the eyes. You know, you don't actually need to test with it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but having said that, I suppose, you, despite your distinct lack of, of appreciation for statistics, I think all the examples that you, you've shown um, kind of require data to be able to verify whether the model is oh correct. God, so I, <laughs> I'm going to be in defense of statistics. I've, 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 gone, I've gone far too hard on statistics. You won't prepare.
prepared for this before you, uh, you agree to, to talk. Yeah, I mean, the next talk I'm giving is about, you know, data for decisions. I think I'm going to have to rethink, can't I? Do, do we have um, another question for David? At the front, is there a, there was a one mic? Oh, was there? Sorry uh, if I missed. Right. Well, we can do it in order. So, oh, okay, I'll take that one next. Hiya. Yeah. What's, what's your favorite model that you've built and what way of thinking did it embody? Oh, I like the favorite question more than my least favorite question. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, uh, that's a really good, I think, I think the, the one I would say is we made a model of locus, right? So in, when I worked in Oxford in the biology department, they were studying African locusts, these plague locusts, but they had them inside a lab. And we, had, we have this prediction from a model that if you have particles going round and they interact with each other, basically try and follow each other's direction, then they'll go in the same direction for a long time, then suddenly they'll all switch and go in the other way, and it's called a phase transition. So you'll go all, all round one way for a bit, then there'll be some sort of randomness, and then they'll switch and they'll go round the other way. And so this worked for particles. And we had the idea, well, let's put the locusts in an arena with just a sort of white background so they can't see anything else other than each other. And then let's just film them. And we found exactly that switching effect in the locusts, that suddenly they were going around and they'd all switch and they'd go the other way around. And as we increase, and we could also see that as we increase the density, they go through a phase transition, much like you see in magnetism or the transition from ice to water and so on. We could, the locusts were actually behaving in this very similar way to many physical systems. And that, I, that was one of the first times I really saw the power of, of this type of thing. This was just a model and an idea we had in the head. We built an arena. I built the first version of the arena. It was like horribly kind of badly constructed, but then we got a really good biologist in and he built a lovely kind of dome-shaped arena. We tested this and, and it, it worked. That, that was one of my favorites. Was there another question at the front? There we go, yeah. Could we predict people's future decisions based off of past decisions, such as like if someone likes one post, are they likely to like another post and then kind of have a cascading effect of a group of people doing something? I mean, absolutely. And that's what has been the massive success. That's why Google and Facebook are such massively successful companies. They can show you adverts. So the thing I hear most often is, oh, it must be listening to my phone. And that's because it's, yeah, you've clicked accept, accept, accept on all the cookies. And so it's not listening to you talking to your friend and saying you're interested in things. It's listening to what you're searching for and what they're searching for. And then it's suggesting things to you. And it's, they're very successful at that. And the other companies don't have the data to do that because not everyone's always on Google whenever they go in, and so they can't have the same success with that. So that, it's very successful at that type of thing, and that's where, as you were saying, with this data and decisions, I mean, it's really, yeah, they're, they're really successful. That's the sort of combination between random chaotic thinking and statistical thinking which allows you to do that. There's limits to it though, right? And I think sometimes it gets overplayed what they can do. They're very good at showing you products. They're not, so good at predicting things like your personality and things like that. There's a lot of discussion, oh, they can predict personality. They can't really do that as successfully as they can predict maybe the next thing you're interested in buying. 
I mean, we were talking earlier about one of the issues is relying on these systems, assuming that they're correct, you know, as, you know, ChatGPT and, yeah. I mean, the, the Google flu predictions were woefully inaccurate. So it's kind of interesting, again, how they can also get it very, very wrong. Yes, exactly. No, they, they, I think that that's, that's the case. And I think that's where we need to be more literate in these types of things. So it's not, it's a massive part of our lives. It's like not being able to, not understanding how these algorithms work and affect our lives is like not being able to cross the road. We're on our phones all of the time and we need to understand what's being done and how we're manipulated. Fairly, yeah, how we're being manipulated, fairly the scary thought. It's kind of interesting that we used to just be worried about statistical literacy and people understanding the difference between correlation and causation. And it seems now that we have these kind of bigger challenges to the information that we're receiving mm. and that is being analysed about personal data that's being analysed and then um, influencing decisions is quite quite scary in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it is. Scary. Well, it comes, I mean, massive opportunities, obviously, as well, to kind of solve some big problems. We've all seen the work in cancer research and so on that's being made great advances by AI, but it mm. does come with some societal challenges as well, I think. Mm. No, I think I've done a lot of work looking at, for example, things like bias in these models. So what will happen when it's learning over and over again from the same sorts of sources, like a massive problem with ChatGPT, for example, is they just trained the whole thing on Reddit. Now, I don't think Reddit is representative of the human population. I don't, don't know. I know my brother spends a lot of time on Reddit, so he can, he can tell me. But, but um, Reddit is obviously just sort of full of a certain type of opinion. And then if ChatGPT is trained on that, they have to spend a lot of time manually removing the opinions on Reddit. And so what they did is that they then employed, so they thought, oh, yeah, it's biased. They understood at that point that it was going to be biased. So what they did is they employed a lot of people in Kenya to sit there and go through all the unpleasant stuff that was written on Reddit and eliminate it from ChatGPT. So then they have to start paying humans to go through all the horrible things that other humans have written and eliminate it from, from the, the training set. So there's, there's all those kinds of difficult um, moral problems with, with those types of methods. Yeah, absolutely. Do we have a, another question from the audience? Here we have one. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm sorry to ask you about your least favorite area, <laughs> but uh, do you think that like the you said like um, there's too much quantification in statistical way of thinking and it's not always good. Mm. Do you think the, you should draw a border? Uh, uh, like when you are drawing a border, it should be on like common sense and uh, moral or something else or something more? Yeah, as I said, I think I went too. I feel, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, it, was, it's, it was my least, statistics are my least favorite out of the four, right? I just, just want to make that clear to start with. But I do think the, the measurement thing is like, why do we really need it? So I, I find it very strange. So as academics are always complaining about being assessed in different, um, you, you, you know, you have to send in the number of citations you have of papers and where you've, so they're always complaining about that. And I think that we don't need to have that level of assessment. It would be much better I have like one random idea about how you might assess people. And so you could, do, you could do this. I've suggested this in my department. What you do is every year you just write one page about what you've done that's good in teaching, research, and outreach to other people. 
then you send that in to the department and they print it out in a brochure and everyone gets it. If you don't write it, we just leave it blank so your colleagues don't see it. And I think this is a sort of qualitative, complex thinking type of method for how you might do assessment of your colleagues. And so you don't, instead of like collecting statistics, we just have this sort of quantitative feeling of what's going on in our department. And every, I think that has a motivating factor as well because you don't want to leave that page blank because everyone will see you've leave, left it blank and you just describe what you've done. And I think those types, of, those types of methods for qualitatively assessing things are equally, if not more important than the statistical methods for assessing people. It's quite a controversial thought. Maybe redesign yes. the research excellence framework. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is true that as soon as you start to measure things, then you drive behavior because we start to, to try and meet those criteria. Yeah, I mean, and then that may so then I, pervert the actual mission of the university. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I, I, I think I want to follow because I went to, uh, when I was in Oxford in 99, Robert May, um, Sir Robert May, mm. or Lord Robert May was in the end, he, started he did this thing so he went round. he he was asked by when he was chief um, scientific officer they asked him can you make british academia more efficient and he thought about it and what he went around doing is he looked at the amount of money spent and the number of citations of um, academia and he found that ratio well okay so so it's, it would take on the top we'll take citations and then we'll divide it by money and that ratio was highest in the UK. It was higher than anywhere else. And so he thought this is a very nice metric for describing that, yeah, we can maybe get better, but we are already best. The lesson they seemed to learn from that, oh, can we measure citations? And then they went off and used citations to measure academics for the next 20 years. So the, the idea that we were actually very good at that measurement was kind of disappeared in all of this. And we ended up measuring how many citations we, we produce. So I think that's a kind of, yeah, for me, that's one of these depressing statistical stories. And I, I know certainly when they introduce some of the targets around A&E, where you have to reduce the weight, you know, you can't wait for more than a certain length of time, dra drives behavior in terms of dealing with the easy ones that you can get out of the door. But if there's someone that comes in very ill, actually, you know. Yeah, and um, I suppose that's where your interactive thinking comes in. There you want to kind of build models which explain what are the processes are going on inside in, in the A&E and use that to, to better understand and better improve those, those systems. And they definitely do that as well. Another question, we have a, a hand over that. Hello, thanks for your talk. Um, you mentioned Markov trying to predict Pushkin's poems and of course he had a lot of vowels and consonants and you trying to predict uh, Tolstoy but you had a lot of words. In the fullness of time, do you think enough data points of human history will exist, that models can be trained to answer some of the big questions that the gentleman had mentioned. Will there be recessions? Will there be wars? Will states rise and fall, et cetera? Something mm -hmm. a little bit like psychohistory from the foundation novels, if you've read yeah. those. Or is there something about human behavior that precludes just enough data being thrown into a model to start to get very predictive? So I see it like this. I see when ChatGPT arrived, there, there they had actually put well, okay, it was mostly Reddit, but they put in lots of our human history. They'd also thrown in Wikipedia there for a balance, maybe. So they put in a lot of our, our entire humanity. And then, you know, write that question into ChatGPT, like, uh, you know, what do you think of the future of humanity? And you'll just get back a lot of waffle. Many people have asked that question of the future of humanity. No one knows the answer. And it won't tell you any of those answers. And I mean, 
So what's my answer? So that's there. I'm avoiding the real question because the real question is, can we like make those kind of Isaac Asimov um, futuristic type of things? And I never know if I want to say a total no to that question. I think in a kind of my most fanciful moments, I think that we should have that type of thinking in some way, that we should try and find those sort of fundamental equations. But at the same time, I do think it's impossible. I think that we're going back to the question about the open system. We're an open system. Everything's changing all of the time. There's no way of sort of pinning it down and finding that final answer. So I think in the end, the future will always remain unexplainable. Oh, we have another question. Hello. Um, so I am a sixth form student, and I have realized in my sixth form there is a a uh, common fear of maths and okay. what do you think is the best way that you can make students engage with math and um, share the joy that you and I both possess for this subject? I, that's a really good question and I certainly don't have all of the answers. It's a, it's a very complicated one but I do think coupling it to computer simulations is very useful. I think that we sit for too long solving different problems. And the way I work when I model something is I build a little computer simulation. In the book I describe the process of two people arguing with each other, one person raising their voice and the other person raising their voice in, in response. And I made a Markov chain model of that type of process and then it becomes, and then I can simulate it and make different arguments and I can compare that to how people do argue with each other. And that's a reasonably easy process to do, and certainly you could do it, certainly any sixth form student could do it, but it could also be done by people from, I don't know, from the sort of age of 12. If you can write something in Scratch, for example, then you could write some kind of simulation of those types of interactions. So a lot more of those types of things which have a mathematical basis, but don't always involve solving the problem. They're a mathematical description of the world. So I'd like to see more of that and also just more use of data, like looking at data, plotting data, trying to understand data. More statistics is, is what, I'm, what I'm saying. More so. data. <laughs> and I have to say, I mean, Kolmogorov was very famous for setting up some amazing math schools. So he was very interested in quite kind of earlier maths education. And um, now in London, there's the King's College Math School, which is based on that particular paradigm. We've got more math schools coming up. But I'd be interested in, in your opinion. About what, what do you think is wrong about how maths is, is taught that puts people off? So I think the mass syllabus right now is too concentrated on calculation as if you have to do many matrix multiplications, many elementary row operations to prove that you're sufficiently good at a subject rather than be understand the concept say um, how is a linear transformation is and how intuitively it is. So I think there should be more diagrams, there should be more intuitive ways of understanding complex topics such like um, calculus and like linear algebra such as that. Okay, nice answer. And I would agree, I suppose, more of the kind of development and problem solving rather than just routine applications of of kind of mathematical methods. I'd certainly agree with, with that. Um, we have a question at the... 
Thank you, and I'm hoping this question hasn't already been asked. I'm wondering whether you feel there's any inherent sympathy or, conversely, antipathy between, among the various four ways of thinking. So would a, the statistical mode be uh, innately more, uh, more fond, as it were, of interactive or uh, that kind of thing? More, more, do you mean like more emotionally sort of, I don't know, sort of nicer or something like that? Or, uh, yeah, I mean, what got me wondering was uh, the psychologist Jung had these, what he called four functions. He claimed that uh, we tend to apprehend reality uh, by means primarily of what he called thinking, feeling, sensation or intuition. And uh, within that basic scheme, he, he subdivided it in various ways. Uh, so he felt that, for example, two of those were, uh, in his terms, rational, two of them were non-rational, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually happy to embrace that type of thing, that there's a kind of, a, for me, there's a strong emotions attached to different equations, and I think people have different emotions about different equations. So definitely, I have my personal emotions about how I see an equation, and, um, or, you know, and if I get, like, going back to the calculus question, if somebody sets me a page of calculus problems that I get one emotion and when I'm solving something which I think is going to understand locus behavior I get another emotion so I definitely I have a very strong emotional attachment to equations and then I think actually back to when I was a kid and weirdly now you know I have like real I used to you know this is well I used to play a lot of role-playing games and I have the really emotional attachment to the fact that you get the six ways to get a seven when you roll two dice. Like that just sort of is like one of these fond memories. I just want to sit there rolling dice and getting, six, uh, getting a seven. And then like just when I discovered that, those sorts of things, I have really strong emotional attachment to, to those types of, types of things. Right, I don't see any hands, but I, I kind of have one final question. And you mentioned um, Asimov earlier on. One of, the favorite, one of my favorite quotes of his, just to demonstrate that it's not all about statistics for me, <laughs> is he, he quote, he's quoted as saying, the saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. Mm. And I think that some of your book kind of speaks a little bit to that. I think that we seem to be storming ahead kind of scientifically mm. and I do worry about whether we're lagging on the kind of more societal aspects of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you've summarised what I'm thinking better than I can do myself. I mean, that's well, that really... Well, Asimov did, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yes, of course. Well, <laughs> you can't take the credit, but I think that that's, that's precisely what I'm trying to do with the book. So I've written... Previously, I've tried to like engage in writing about social media and when I wrote Outnumbered, for example, and this book is really just like, let's calm down, nothing about like, you know, we talked about ChatGPT, nothing about that type of technology. It's just like, you know, this is how we should think and this is how we become wise and this is how we use these methods and that's what I've tried to focus on. So, yeah, thank you for the quote. And thank you, and I think um, let's just another uh, big round of applause, a sustained round. Of thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.